Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful uh, that we get to start a new book. I don't know why it is for me, but uh, every time we start a new book, I just get excited. Uh, I enjoy uh, outlining and preparing and uh, coming to a new theme, and sometimes I can't even wait to get done with the old book. I just can't wait. I just start jumping ahead and studying ahead, and First uh, John has been like that as well. Uh, it's exciting uh, to be in this book. Uh, Lord, we know that your word never returns void, that when your word goes out, uh, it accomplishes its work. And so my prayer uh, in this church is that we would be able to experience that as we go through First John, that you would accomplish the work of your word in First John in the life of the individual believers here, uh, that as we invest in reading and uh, studying and hearing sermons about and memorizing verses and applying this book to our own lives that will come out of this in five weeks, uh, a different person, a stronger believer that will have greater fellowship with you, will have a greater knowledge of our salvation, greater hope in our eternal life. And Lord, would you open your word up to us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 John, that's the book we're at. If you don't know where 1 John is, go all the way to the end of your Bible and just turn back a couple of pages at a time. You'll find it. It's uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, then you have Jude, then you have Revelation. And so it's all those little tiny books right before the book of Revelation. And uh, anyway, uh, I, I want to put together, just as we start this new book out, uh, a little bit of a picture for you in the way that John has written. Uh, John the Apostle has written the Gospel of John, he has written 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he has written the book of Revelation. But if you take those books and you look at how they're written and the purpose for which they're written, uh, first of all, we studied the Gospel of John. We just finished that out, right? The Gospel of John, we said it was written so that you may believe. And it was focused on the past. It was focused on Jesus Christ, His death, and His resurrection. It was so that you may believe these things. It had a focus on the past. Uh, the interesting thing about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John they're about the present. This is how you live presently. Now that you believe this, this is how you live in this present world. And, what, and, it, and it's great the way that he wrote it. It's written so that it can be applied to any generation, how you live now, and specifically not just now, but how you can know certain things. And the overall theme of the book here in second, First John uh, is that we would know that we have eternal life. But really, I want to just focus in on that idea, know. John was believe, 1 John is no, and then Revelation is so that you can have hope in the future, and so it points to our future. But right in the middle here, this 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they deal with the present. How do we practically live in the present? There's this understanding there are things we need to know. 32 times the word no comes up in 1 John. It's only five chapters. In five chapters, he uses the word no 32 times. He wants you to know something, and that's K-N-O-W, not N-O. It's not a list of no's, no, no. It's a list of you should know, you should know, you should know. And it's intended to help us to gain knowledge, but how that knowledge can then apply to our life. Um, the outline for this book is, uh, uh, it's not discernible. <laughs> there is not one very simple, clear outline like so many of the other books in the Bible. You just follow it through. Uh, it's fun, again, because I love outlines, I get all these resources and all their outlines together, and I, I line them all up, and I try to see how they're all exactly the same, and it usually takes just a couple of minutes, 
And I can see just the simplicity, the simple outline that's there when you take all these outlines together. When you do that with the gospel of, or when you do that with 1 John, uh, you get the idea that nobody has any idea how to outline this book because none of them are the same. And, and it's, it's crazy because like, you'll have one that's very linear, first, second, third, fourth, fifth chapter, and just lines it out. And then I've got another one and it's circular. And it's just like this, these loops within there. And, and the reason is that John is taking a handful of themes and he weaves them together. And so they might get more emphasis in certain sections, but then he draws in the other themes and it's kind of this ebb and flow. So instead of a typical outline, I'm going to use uh, the idea of a heartbeat. Uh, and there are somewhat sections, but again, when I say that, the first two chapters may deal more with God is light. And the second, third, or the third and fourth chapter more, may deal more with God is love. And the fifth may deal with the idea that God is life. But life runs all throughout that. And love runs all throughout the book. And so, yeah, I'm saying there's a general focus, but it's, each of these concepts just keeps getting repeated and repeated. And they're just kind of woven together in kind of this cool picture uh, of all of these things kind of playing together. Uh, now... As you look at that outline, um, you can kind of try to discern from that what it is that John's trying to approach to us. If it is that uh, we may know certain things, uh, what he wants us to know is that God is light, God is love, and God is life. But it gets a little bit more confusing than that because as you go through 1 John, he actually is going to list out a bunch of reasons why he wrote this book. Uh, let's look at a couple of those real quick. Uh, in chapter 1, he gives two reasons. Uh, one is that you may have fellowship, uh, and he describes that fellowship as with us and with God the Father and the Son, and that we would all have this fellowship together. We'll talk about what that word means in a little bit. Uh, it's written so that we may have joy. It's written so that we may not sin. Uh, it's written because there are those out there who want to deceive you. It's written so that you would have eternal life. Like all of these things are just kind of woven together. Uh, here's what I want you to think of in this. If you get a letter from somebody and they just have a bunch of stuff they want to tell you and they're trying to get it all written down, this is what it looks like. This is not a book. This is a letter. It's different. It's more personalized. It's not intended to be like when I grab a textbook... It's intended to be organized and detailed and lined out and make sense in that way. This is kind of like it's a letter, but it's, it's like a very loose letter. It's, it's a letter that's just very, um, um, it's almost like the spoken word, how the spoken word has a tendency to kind of circle around and ramble. It's conversational in its tone. It's a simpler way of communicating things in there. Uh, when we look through this, the one that I want you to catch on for a minute, the one purpose in writing that I want you to just grasp here uh, initially uh, is this idea that there are concerning those who would deceive you, that there are people out there who are in intentionally trying to deceive believers. Uh, it's, it's thought that that's the backdrop for the whole book, that there are certain teachings that are beginning to spring up uh, in the uh, early years of the church that are drawing people away from the truth. And those deceptions are being used for the purpose of excusing sin. Now, the way that that works out is in two ways. The first deception that they're kind of struggling with is 
Uh, there's this deception that later kind of gets a name called Gnosticism, this idea that there's some special knowledge. Uh, but within that is this idea, encompassed in that is this idea that Jesus never was really physical. Now, it was expressed in different ways through different people. Some people taught that he was just a normal person, just like you and I, just hanging out one day until, boom, God chose him to be the Messiah. And at that moment, he became a spiritual being, not a physical being. And they would have all kinds of ideas about why that's important. And, you know, hey, the world is evil, so Jesus couldn't really be in the world or else that would make him evil. Therefore, he wasn't really in the world. He was just spiritual. And so if he was walking down the beach and you looked at the sand... There were no footprints in the sand. Ooh. It's the Halloween book. Spooky, right? The other way that that plays out, though, is in another teaching uh, that then sprung kind of from that same idea is that we now as believers have both a physical and a spiritual side. The spiritual side of us has been saved. The physical side is dying. And since the physical side is dying and is unimportant, you can sin as much as you want because your physical body is born in sin. And so it was leading people to live very sinful lives. They were getting involved in all kinds of sinful things, and they were saying, it's cool, that's just my physical body. My spiritual body, though, is saved eternally. And so it was an excuse for people to sin. So as you read through this book, you're going to see that theme woven through there. Although he only specifically mentions deception that one time, you can see as he's trying to draw these various contrasts and ideas throughout the book that he's trying to combat these false teachings. And he's doing it, I think, in a very delicate way. Uh, I love how he does that by describing essentially, this is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time saying, this is the deception, this is the deception. But if you understand these truths, you'll recognize the deception when you see it. This idea that there's somehow some separation between your physical and your spiritual that makes your physical body capable of doing whatever you want. And who worries about it? Who cares? All that's already been paid for at the cross. It's already died. Don't worry about it. That sinful stuff you're doing, no big deal. Keep going on as you were because your soul, your spirit will be saved. That's a deception that comes in to draw people away from, well, from fellowship. The other thing that's interesting about the gospel of, or about the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, sometimes when John writes... He writes in such a circular way that you almost get done reading that paragraph or that sentence. For instance, first three verses, one sentence. And at the end of it, you go, do what now? What, what did he just say? And I'm sure that's in the translation from the Greek to the English. Uh, the first three or four verses are kind of like that. I'm going to read them through, but I want to help you a little bit. I'm going to read through it actually twice. And each time I'm going to ask you to uh, try to connect on two different ideas that are going together in this, okay? And then I will rewrite this for you in English so that you can understand what it says. But first, I want you to hear the first time I read it through, I want you to think of words that have to do with your senses, touch, feel, see, those types of things, the physical like realities of things. This is important, right? He's trying to teach that Jesus really did come in the flesh, so how is he going to describe that as somebody who is actually with Jesus? I saw the guy. I touched him. This was not a spirit who floated across the beach. 
This was a real guy. So catch first the senses as I read through this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Did did you catch the emphasis there on the senses? Over and over he goes over, and it's repetitive. In verse 1, seen. I'm sorry, in verse 1 it starts with, I heard him, seen with our eyes. And then it says, and looked at. And you think that's redundant, but it's kind of like this. If I see something, I go, wow, I need to go look at that, right? Like I see this plant over here. Now I'm going to go look at it. Now I'm going to like really pay attention. It was, he was paying attention. He's using all of his senses. He heard, he's seen, he touched with his hands. Uh, you might even include in that in verse 2, the word manifested. Uh, in other words, this was real. This was actually real. He was really here. He was in our presence. He was manifested, made known to us. And then he gets back to the visual. We have seen. And then in verse 3, we have seen. Do you see this kind of repetitive? He wants it to be clear. Jesus was real. The word of life was real. This wasn't just some fantasy or some story. He was real. You could hear him. You could see him. You could feel him. Jesus really existed. And it points out in this that the writer, the author, that John, along with his fellows, with the disciples, they were eyewitnesses of this. Who are you going to believe? The people that were there, saw, heard, touched Jesus? Or the people that came along later and are trying to describe him? This is why we keep going back to the Word. Because these are the accounts of those who knew Jesus. The Old Testament, the accounts of those who saw God work. It's not stories about the Word. It is the Word. It's not stories about Jesus. It is the Jesus who John knew. This time I'm going to read it through now, and I want you to hear what it is he wants to do with this knowledge. Uh, How is he announcing these things is really what it comes down to. What is he trying to do to deliver it to you? So I'm going to read through it again. I want you to, to think of delivery methods here. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of the life. The life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So the next thing I want to focus on in those first four verses, not the senses, but now how he's trying to transmit this information. And so he goes through and, and lists these things out. He's testifying, he's proclaiming, and they use that twice, and he's writing them down. So there's a message he's trying to transmit, but this message is a personal message to him because he actually heard, he actually saw, he actually touched the manifested Jesus Christ, the real guy. He heard him, he saw him, he touched him, and now he wants to tell you something about him. And then that's where I'm now going to read through it a third time to see if you can actually catch what he wants to say. Because that's what kind of happens in this passage. You just kind of get caught up in the heard, seen, manifested, proclaimed, testify, speak, write. Whoa, (laughs) what is he even talking about? Now try to catch just what he's trying to say about or what he's trying to communicate about what he saw, what he touched. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Now what is he trying to say? Now that you set aside the senses, now that you set aside the idea that he wants to communicate through proclaiming and testifying and writing, you set those things aside now and you look at what's left, now you can kind of select out what it is he's really trying to communicate in that sentence. He wants to tell you about something that was concerning the word of life, in eternal life. He wants you to have fellowship And he wants your joy to be made complete. Well, here's how I rewrote that whole section here. I probably should have just started with that and just skipped the whole exercise, right? But here's what I would, this is how I would interpret that into my own uh, English sentence. John speaking says, what we personally experienced concerning the eternal word of life, that is Jesus, we proclaim to you so that you have fellowship with us, so that our joy may be made complete. The things that they personally experienced concerning Jesus, the eternal word of life, they want to tell you about them so that we can all be in fellowship with one another and we can have joy. So now when I read 1 John... I want to read it with that in mind. He's explaining all of these things to us so that we can have this fellowship together, this joyous fellowship. That's what I want to get out of this book, a joyous fellowship. And it's kind of cool as you go through it. Uh, I think sometimes we look at the word fellowship. It's A fellowship is just an event where we get a bunch of people together in the fellowship hall. So we're going to have a fellowship in the fellowship hall. And it kind of just kind of runs off and it sounds like a very important word, 
But when we really get down to it, fellowship means we're going to share our lives with each other. That's what it means. We're going to share our lives with each other. And it's not included in this building, in the fellowship hall. It's our entire life being shared together. So he's speaking now to the community of believers, and that'll become very clear in chapter 2. He's going to, uh, again, in a very um, repetitive fashion, say, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you. And he's going to list out these various groups of people, but then he lists out their characteristics, and every one of them, it's describing them as a believer. So he's writing this to all of us believers in chapter 2. He clarifies that, but in all of us, he wants us to have this fellowship with one another, this shared life that will bring us joy. But what's powerful about this shared life, it's not just a shared life with us, which is important and powerful. It's not just a shared life with the believers of the past, like John and the other apostles, but it's a shared life in verse 3 with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's creating this true community of believers in fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That is exciting to hear, but a little weird to think about. Like, what does it mean practically for me? I get having fellowship with you guys, right? That's easy for me. I can have a shared life with you guys because you're like right here. How do I have a shared life with John? He did. <laughs> I mean, nothing personal, John. But you're gone. <laughs> How do I have a shared life with him? Well, in a certain sense, the way that we have a shared life with him is in that we have the same experience in Jesus Christ. That we get to experience the same Jesus Christ he did. That's where we're beginning to have this fellowship with these people in the past that are dead. But even, I think, a little more freaky to people... How do we have fellowship with God? How do we have fellowship with, with Jesus? Like I get that John was able to hear him and see him and touch him. I don't actually get to hear him, not the way John did. I've never been able to see him, not the way John did. And I've never been able to touch him, certainly not the way John did. How can I have a similar type fellowship? Well, the rest of the book then goes about placing what that looks like, giving us a little bit more detail of what that type of fellowship with God is going to look like. So when we pick it up in verse 5, what we're actually starting to do is build a picture of what fellowship will look like with the Father and with the Son. So try to keep that in mind as we move forward now. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. And there's that, that concept again. Before it was, we have spoken, we testify, we proclaim, we write. And then here again in verse 5, this is the message that we heard from Him and announced to you. The message that we heard from Jesus and announced to you the message we heard from the Word of Life, who is Jesus Christ. We now announce to you, God is light, and in Him no darkness at all. Now, if we're looking at this in terms of fellowship, let me just say it to you in a simple way. 
If God is light and there's no darkness at all, there's no fellowship with God when we're in the darkness. He's going to proclaim a little bit more about what that means as we go forward. But I don't want you to just think about darkness as in you've turned the light on and you've turned the light off. Darkness as he's using it is a symbol or picture, maybe a metaphor. You know, you Englishy people can tell me the right word to put in there. He's trying to illustrate, and you'll see this very clearly, darkness is living in sin. It's living apart from God. There's going to be a clear connection to sin in particular here as we finish up chapter 1 and then get into chapter 2 next week. You're going to see that clear connection to the idea of sin. But the beautiful thing about light is it chases darkness. It just chases darkness. In fact, uh, I can actually visualize this in my brain. You may not be able to visualize this, but I can visualize it. If I walk into my son's room, for instance, at night when he's asleep and I know other parents do this. I'm not the only creepy dad out there, right? Uh, I did it a lot when my kids were young. I do it a lot when my kids are sick. But when I go in and I just check on them at night, right? As I begin to open the door into that dark room and light comes in from the hallway, I can literally see the the light chasing the darkness away. And, And the darkness is trying to get around to the outside of the door. It's getting on the other side of the door where I can't see what's into the darkness, right? And I'll take out my phone and I'll turn on the little flashlight app because I have to watch for all the little Legos on the floor that are there to designed uh, like walking through the temple of doom so you don't harm yourself greatly. I have to bring out my little flashlight and as I'm bringing the flashlight around the room, I can see the darkness begin to move and try to get away from the light. You can see it hiding behind the picture frame. You can see it shrink behind the dresser. As you just move that around, and it goes under this, it goes under his bed. Now, of course, we know scientifically what's happening, right? You're literally just bringing the light, and where there's light, there can't possibly be darkness. We understand the scientific, but it really looks like, like the darkness is running away from the light. Where God is, there is no darkness. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. In the way that we understand that the darkness flees from the light, we also understand if you want to chase away the darkness, you don't use a stick, you use the light. If you have darkness in your life, you chase it away with God who is light. And as we get in His Word, and as we spend time in prayer, and as we spend time with other believers, He's shining this light all throughout your life. And every once in a while, you'll notice as He shines His light, the light of His Word, the light of fellowship with other believers, you'll start to recognize the areas that you do not want the light to shine. That's the other thing about going into my son's room. It is perfectly clean when the lights are off. (laughs) But when the lights are on, I can see everything. You see, we sometimes hide in the darkness. Maybe you've done this. It doesn't always have to be sin, but I'm going to kind of have you think of it in terms of sin in this way. But uh, you guys probably have the exact same thing that happens that happens at my house. If we're going to invite someone to our house... What do we have to do before we allow them to come in? You've got to clean that thing. 
They're about to see how you live. <laughs> so the next thing you know, and Sheila loves to do this to me because she knows I'm um, a little bit obsessive about things sometimes. So she'll say, Sean, will you clean the bathroom? Now for her, she goes in the bathroom, 25 minutes, it's clean, and it looks good. For me, I'm down on the ground on my hands and knees getting the dirt out of the corners. Like, oh my goodness, can you see this? Oh, ah. It's like a, it's a obsession. And so she knows if I clean the bathroom, it looks different when I'm done. <laughs> the last time we had some people coming over, we had the young marrieds at our house a few weeks ago. I was just supposed to clean the bathroom. I've got the vents out of the floor. I've taken them apart so I can get the dust off. Nobody sees that. I did when I was on my hands and knees trying to wipe the baseboard. This is what you do. When you know that something is about to be seen, you clean it up. When you're allowing God the light into your life, you start to clean house. You start to clean up the garbage in your life. When you hang out with other believers, it's an interesting thing. It's crazy how believers don't curse around each other. But I know a lot of believers that curse at work. It's a strange thing. I used to have people that would, um, when I was in the military, that they would curse and they would go, oh, I'm sorry, Sean. Do you think that I'm the one that's going to judge you? <laughs> you tell him you're sorry. And you know what? He hears you even when I'm not around. But it's just this idea, this idea that we have that we just try to clean things up when the light is being shined on it. Your basement storeroom does not need to be cleaned. You know why? Doors shut, lights off. But if you're going to spend much time down there, next thing you know, you're rearranging boxes. You're cleaning up because the light has been shined and it's been exposed. God is light and in Him there is no darkness. The impact of that then looks like this in verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son, the blood of Jesus His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we're liars. If your life is filled with darkness, do not lie to yourself. And I love how it says that. We do not practice the truth. If that's not your habit, if you spend more time in darkness than you do in light, and by darkness I mean around things that are offensive to God, that you don't want God to see if He's coming over to your house. If you have to hide your DVDs before I come visit your house, you might be living in darkness. It just might work that way. If you have to change the radio station before you let Pastor Sean sit in your car, you might be living in darkness. Now look at this. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. There's just a deception that's going on there. Now, I'm not going to take this as far as some people. Some people will take this all the way to the extreme and say, you're obviously not a believer. I'm not taking it to that extreme. I'm just saying, even for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, 
they still have these situations where they walk in darkness. And as they're doing it, it's deceptive. They're lying to themselves. They're lying to others. What we should be doing is practicing the things of the truth. And the things that you practice are the things that you're not good at yet. That's why we have to practice them. That's why we have to do these things over and over and over again. We have to remind ourselves of very simple, basic Christian things. Uh, Most key for me is the Word of God. We have to get in the habit of reading His Word. This is why I've been trying to kind of hound on this when we restarted the Bible here after Easter. and Every week, I'm wanting you to read the chapter every day of the week that we're getting into. Because I want you to get practiced. I want you to get in the habit of shining the light of God's Word into your life. If we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, here now is the contrast to the darkness, which is great because light and darkness is a great contrast. But here's the contrast to walking in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth in darkness. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Christians, if you're struggling to have fellowship with other believers, it's probably because you never do the things that other believers do. I know Christians that I've met in my life, and I'm convinced in my heart that they're believers. They can say the right things when it comes to their confession. I truly believe that they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not going to go to church. I don't have time for that. First of all, it's on Sunday. You know what's on Sunday? Football's on Sunday. Second of all, I worked all week long. You know how tired I am on Sunday? And I got to prepare the meals for the whole week, get them in the fridge so they're ready so it'll be easy when I get home from work. I don't have time for Sunday. If you want to have fellowship with believers... If you want to be in the light, you got to do the things they do. This is just a side note, unimportant entirely probably to anybody else, but this is a side note. One of my favorite things about our church is that we have windows in the sanctuary. It's annoying if you're trying to have a wedding at a certain time of the day. I get that. The sun comes in and hits all the wrong places and the photographers are like, ah! But there's something weird to me about walking into a sanctuary for church And all the lights are off and you can't see the people that you're with. It is creepy to me. It's just weird. I went to a church one time. I walk in the door. It's pitch black. Of course, it's light outside, but it's pitch black in the sanctuary. My eyes have not adjusted. I'm I'm walking like this, trying to find a seat. And I walk, boom, face first into another guy. He turns on a flashlight. He's the usher. He didn't see me come in. I didn't see him. We ran face first into each other. And he gets his flashlight. Oh, let me find you a seat. I'm like, hey, look how you turned that light on to find one. Maybe we could turn them all on. I could find my own seat. (laughs) I could sit with a friend, somebody I knew. I might see a coworker in here. How crazy is that? I'm not saying it's evil. I'm just saying it's weird. (laughs) Like, how am I supposed to have fellowship with somebody if I'm not allowed to see their face? We come into church, we're not allowed to talk. And now we're not allowed to see each other either. It's hard. 
sake of time, I'm going to move on and put that little pet peeve of mine in my back pocket. We might come back to that later. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is kind of a cool connection. Uh, He talked about being in fellowship with God. And then he went about first talking about where or how you walk, walking in darkness versus walking in light. Now it's about how we talk. If you say, if you confess, if you say. So on one side of our fellowship, there's the way and the places in which we walk. But the other side is the way and the things that we talk. There's something that we say, in particular in this case, the talk is on this concept of sin. It says this, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Have you run across people who say that they've never sinned? That's actually less common than you might think. I've asked all kinds of strangers, unbelievers, have you sinned? And they're like, oh yeah. They like brag about it. Like, I can, I can give you the list right now. I've sinned sins you don't even know about yet. I've done things I can't even define. But there's this weird thing that happens with believers. One side of it is doctrinal. The other side is just personal. On the personal side, we try to pretend like we never sin. It's not a doctrinal belief. I think in the end, we all doctrinally understand that after we got saved, we probably sinned again, right? But just personally, we act like it's never happened. If you were to talk to your average Christian and say, hey, what are you struggling with right now? They're going to mention their finances. They might mention a relationship. They might wish, mention coworkers or uh, what's going on at work, health. Very rarely are they going to say, man, alcohol is eating me up. I just day after day, I'm struggling with the same sin over and over and over again. What are you struggling with? Gluttony has got me. It's just everywhere I go in this world is an all-you-can-eat buffet. I have not seen a mini-mart that I did not want to stop at and buy a Coke and a candy bar. And by the way, they will give you two hot dogs for $3. (laughs) What are you struggling with? I work on a computer all day long. You know, you're always just one click away from pornography. Nobody wants to talk about that. We pretend, I don't struggle with sin. I'm a Christian now. If you're saying you're not struggling with sin, listen to what it says. We say that we have no sin. We're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. There's also a doctrine out there that this combats a little bit. There actually is a doctrine that says once you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you never sin again. John says, if you say that you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. Easy doctrine to combat. But he gives us the contrast to that. If you say you have no sin, deceiving yourself, but the contrast is... 
If you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then it kind of repeats it the other way. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. And so it's kind of sandwiched in between the two negatives is the positive. The two negatives, I have no sin, I have not sinned. So previously I've not sinned, currently I'm not in sin. If that's who you think you are, you're deceiving yourself. But if you're willing to confess your sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So one of the ways we have fellowship with God is to be in the light, to be where He is, to be around His people, to be in His Word, to be in prayer. Another way that we have fellowship with God is to confess our sins. As we confess our sins, He's faithful, which means He will keep His promise, but He's also righteous, which means He's he's capable, He's in the right. He has the right to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, short on time, but I want you to understand what one of my struggles is with this. I believe wholeheartedly when Jesus died on the cross, paying the price for the sins, he paid the price for all the sins of the whole world for all time. That is handed to us at the moment that we confess Christ as Lord. So there's a lot of people out there, Jesus already paid the price for their sins, but they'll never receive that payment because they're not willing to follow him as Lord, right? There's a lot of bills out there already paid, but they're never going to receive the benefit of that paid bill because they refuse to confess him as Lord. This is where it gets tricky for me then. I've already confessed him as Lord. All of my sins have already been forgiven. Here's where the tricky part comes in. So if I sin again, what's the value in eternity in me confessing that sin to him? What's what's the value in that? Because I'm already in heaven. I'm already promised eternal life. The value in that seems to be fellowship with Him. That's the value in confessing those sins. Yes, there's this cleansing from your sin. I call this, and other people have called this, uh, 1 John 1.9, the Christian's bar of soap. It's how you get all cleaned back up again, right? But again, I don't think it's like, I was forgiven of all my sins, and then I sinned again, so I've lost my salvation. I'm going back to hell, but then I confessed my sins again. Now I'm back into heaven, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's not what I believe is happening at all. I believe that my sins were completely forgiven at the cross the moment I confessed Christ. That was appropriated to me personally. But as I continue on in my life, I continue to recognize the sin in my life. That there is a value, not dwelling on past sins, but presently in my life, there is a value in confessing to my Savior, I'm sinning in this area. And hopefully that confession will lead me to stop doing those things, right? But there's a value in that. There is a sharing of life that comes in confession that is deep. There's a deep fellowship as you confess those things to God. And honestly, who do you think you're kidding? 
You ever had that moment where you're like praying and then this sinful thought comes to your mind? The sinful thing that you did earlier in the day? Ooh, I don't want to talk about that. I'm praying about my job right now. Maybe God didn't notice. (laughs) This is a true relationship where you share everything with Him that's going on. This is a true fellowship. And, And here's a crazy piece of this that might mess with you even more. We're also told to confess our sins not just to Him, but to one another. Now that's messy. Now you know my stuff, and I don't know your stuff yet, so how do I win the blackmail battle? Right? Like, you might use my stuff against me. I need to have some ammunition against you. Mutually assured destruction. Am I the only one that thinks like that? Nobody else has that problem? Y'all like, I share my sins with people all the time. It's no big deal. Not me. Those are my sins. <laughs> That's hard. It's so hard to share with other people. But here's the result of that sharing. A shared life with another believer will bring about a strength of relationship you just can't have with anybody else. When you start to share your deepest struggles and your deepest pains with somebody, and they receive it in Christian love, when they forgive you, when they absolve you of those sins, when they comfort you, now you have a real friend. A real friend. And when you have a real friend, you have joy. We proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Joy-filled fellowship is found by walking in the light and confessing our sins. This is where we begin to have fellowship with one another and fellowship with God as we're walking openly in the light and confessing our sins. That's where this real joyous relationship comes from. My friends, I fear that we spend too much time walking around trying to hide our hurts, trying to hide our sins, trying to hide our struggles, trying to hide our pain, that we never get to experience the joy of true fellowship with one another and with God. Because we hide everything. And we become like the darkness. As soon as a little light gets in there, we start shoving stuff behind the dresser. Just push all that stuff under the bed. That's not what true fellowship looks like. And my prayer for this book is that me, we, us, can really fellowship with one another and with God. Next week we'll be in 1 John chapter 2. So I want you to read 1 John chapter 2 every day next week. 
If you uh, uh, want to, you can up your game a little bit by trying to memorize 1 John 2.25. If you don't like 1 John 2.25, you can memorize any verse in there you want. I will be pleasantly pleased by that. I'll be happy. I'll be very excited about that. But some people told me it was easier if I assigned a verse. So I've assigned a verse to help those that prefer an assignment as to do what you want. This is why we love the Old Testament law so much, right? Just tell me what to do. It's easier than figuring it out myself. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know me more than anybody in this room, and you know that I am a professional hider. I'm so very good at coming out here on Sunday and I'm doing my best to be who I am, except the stuff that I'm really struggling with. Those things I save for you, I save for my wife. Now, Lord, I would pray for myself that I would get better at just being honest, at just confessing that, son, that sometimes sin captures me as well. Lord, I pray that that would be true for all of us that each one of us would be just more open and honest with each other. We'd really begin to share our lives with you and with one another. Father, I can't help but think there are people in the room today who have been so closed off to everyone, including you, that when that dam finally breaks and they finally start letting stuff out, Lord, there's just going to be an emotional hot mess for a while. I think they're so afraid of that that they don't want to share anything. Lord, if you would help them to just break that dam and then allow other believers and your Holy Spirit to bring them comfort, that they could be comforted in the same way that we've been comforted, in the way that you've comforted us in the past, that they can experience true fellowship with the believers around them and true fellowship with you. Lord, would you begin to mend our hearts and our relationships with you and with one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.